Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, with another exciting second hour of economic Drivel with the personal wealth coach. Oh, with Jake and... Jeff McClure. McClure. Yes, and we yes. can say our names together with prompting. Is now going to, we're going to run you off with something else as arcane. Go ahead. We've reported before that China, a lot of Chinese, a lot of Chinese companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange will not allow U.S. auditors to look at their books. They won't allow anybody to look at their books because is, of state secrets. Right. Good news coming out. The, on the, the, the Chinese government has said, if you can look at our books, you can see what's going on in our economy. And that's a state secret. And so we're not going to let you see it. And five major companies voluntarily delisted. Now, those five companies were all state-owned. They are owned by the government of China. And the government of China absolutely does not want anybody seeing what's going on economically in those state-owned companies, probably because they're losing money hand over fist. Or fist over hand. Something like that. But an agreement was reached this week to allow U.S auditors to look at the the finances that have been compiled in the companies in China. They're not going to go to China and go into the companies and audit physically, but they'll be able to look at the documents that ha that were used for audits inside of China. And the interesting thing about it, I, it's an arcane science, but it is still a science. There is a science of auditing that says if the numbers don't match up, reality is not there. It's almost impossible to create a fictitious set of numbers that will survive a careful scrutiny by a good auditor. So if they produce the numbers, which they have agreed to do, there are about 200 companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange that will be able to stay on the New York Stock Exchange that are Chinese companies. Now, why is that important? China and the U.S. have been becoming more hostile towards each other, and frankly, that's scary. China, the Chinese government, has made the decision to allow the U.S. auditors to see the books, the numbers, from 200 Chinese companies. That is a major breakthrough. It is, it is delightful. It means that the Chinese government is not interested in going to war with us at this point. They're interested in cooling things off, in, in having a little more normal relationship rather than shooting ships out of the sea and invading Taiwan. The other thing, and we mentioned this before, and I think it's, it's very important, for his first trip out of China since the pandemic, Chairman Xi, Xi, Xi. It's yes. kind of a combination of those two sounds of Xi, yes. Whoever he is, um, President, Chairman is going to visit with the president of the United States. It, okay, big deal. They're just a couple of old guys are going to talk. No, it is a big deal. Um, it's, it's form and face are critically important in China more than they are in the United States. The fact that he is willing to raise the status of the president of the United States by visiting with the president of the United States and having discussions with the president of the United States for his first trip out of the country since the pandemic started is a big signal that he does not want to go to war. He does not want things to blow up. 
and he's and I that, that's tremendous good news. Uh, one of the things that was kind of brewing there for a while is whether China was going to invade Taiwan. Now, why is that? Why are we talking about that on an economic show? Whoa, that would be another major shock that would conceivably send the world into a serious recession. That would be more. It would be a larger event than the Ukrainian shock. Oh yeah, and and uh, it would be huge. And the fact that it appears, based on the signals being sent right now, that we see it ain't going to happen anytime in the near future is delightful. I can't tell you how delightful it is to know that that risk, the risk of that, fell off dramatically. What Russia is going to do? That's still a wild card. Uh, for whatever it's worth, is from my military background and military intelligence and everything else, uh, which probably is not as good as it once was. Wait a minute. Isn't that the oxymoron? Military intelligence? What, what it is, is an oxymoron. Yeah, it is an ox. It's a moron, but most oxes are moron. Uh, the, the President Putin is backed into a corner. He can't back down and he can't win. That's bad. It will be a matter of continuing to so if we have the fortitude to continue to supply Ukraine with weapons and money because they're going broken in a high rate of speed, Russia will stay tied down and a stalemate is not too bad a thing. Frankly, if if the Ukrainians start pushing Russia out of Ukraine and it looks like Putin is going to lose, that might be a little crazy. Uh, I, I really sincerely hope that they reclaim their country and that uh, Russia loses this war in the sense that they do not hold on to any part of Ukraine. And I think ultimately that may be the case, but that is still a wild card. It is, But as time goes by, it's gradually being neutralized. So there's some good news out there, too. And it's important to see that we have some good news. We think, at least I think, the United States economy is going to grow very nicely. It's going. Its rate of growth is going to slow. I don't think we're going to have a recession. If we do have a recession, it'll be very mild and not very noticeable. Okay, that's mine. I agree with that. I agree with that. I I think a a recession in the next year and a half is definitely in a likelihood. Whether or not it happens, it's not as likely as some other times in my history of in in my career. Uh, But it's likely. It, It could happen. Um, all right. So I wanted to kind of change the subject, but not greatly. You were talking about China. Um, and I've had some requests to talk about a couple of things and you, you have a book that, that you insisted that I get that deals with the threat of China. Uh, I have been requested to talk about Ray Dalio's new book, principles of dealing with the changing world order. By the way, that's definitely worth reading. It's a great book. It talks about a lot of the math on how we look at the cycles in big socioeconomic systems. Um, He's written other books about the cycles of corporations, and they're not dissimilar. They're very uh, much the same in the cycle and where you start with a great deal of innovation and things are really nimble and then your workforce gets older and your uh, innovation starts to fall off and the money spent more on keeping up with the things that you're doing than making up new things to do. And at some point, that maturing company becomes 
overly mature or changes and the cycle goes back to being young and nimble. The same thing happens in major empires in the, in, in the world across history. And he, Ray Dalio goes into a lot of detail about what to look for when the equilibrium shifts, when a set of norms that have been developed across society suddenly breaks and changes. Uh, and that's often referred to as the new world order because there's always a new world order because the last world order isn't around anymore, whatever that is. We're in the middle of a major change right now. And he lays that out very well, numerically, statistically, historically, saying, hey, things are changing. But I think we've been talking about that the entire episode of things are changing right now. We have a set of standards that were put in place at the fall of the Soviet Union, a set of orders that were put in place maybe even at the rise of the Soviet Union, World War II and the shift of alliances, and the shift of what's acceptable. And then as the Soviet Union fell, it's like that world order solidified into democracy and a series of things that we can look at and say, these things became prominent. Uh, trade between countries, uh, even when you disagree politically, and loans between countries, and uh, interlinking of uh, different countries into larger and larger groupings of socioeconomic pacts or even into confederations that are almost countries of their own, read the European Union here. And then you have Brexit and you have uh, threatens for Grexit and you have the, the Russians invading another country. Both countries purported to be democratic elections. So the world order that solidified into this system is kind of fraying at the edges and then suddenly breaks. Now we're going a different direction. Well, what direction are we going? China is a rising power. They've had massive amounts of manufacturing capacity added. Massive. Just the only other time in history that we've seen that growth rate and manufacturing capacity was in the United States during the Industrial Revolution. Well, China's got a larger workforce than we did then. So it was a percentage of the whole world. It's a faster rate. It's never been recorded like this before. And prosperity has blossomed across China. And now coming to the end of this, where it's clamping down on trade, where it's clamping down on that kind of growth and innovation and heading in a different direction. At the same time, the United States has an aging population as well. And the innovation question about where are we spending our money? Are we spending it on keeping peace across the planet or on paying down our own debt? So one of the pieces of information that I'm looking at, I mentioned last hour about the revenue to the government and how it's up and how that's a, it's a tremendous amount up. Something else of note that is extremely of note, the amount of money spent by the U.S. Treasury on interest on the public debt is now more than defense spending for the year, or right at it, within a billion dollars. That's a big deal. That's a, I mean, we've spent a lot on defense. Well, now we're spending about the same amount as we spend on the best military on the planet on keeping up with the debt. 
with interest rates going up, that's going to increase. So there's a lot of unknowns out there. Are we going to continue to focus on research and development and on recognizing innovation? Or are we going to become a much fairer society that says everybody gets money? These are questions. Fairer being with air quotes around them. There's no good definition of the word fair. Pay your fair share means something different to everyone. So what does this mean? Well, the world is changing, and it's changing at a rate that we haven't seen before. And it comes from these same impacts that are causing all these ripples all over the place. Where it settles out, where all these ripples settle out, going to be different from where it started. We're going to have a completely different set of trade deals. One, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this last week that talked about China solidifying its role as the manufacturer for the world during the pandemic. And I think it was kind of a short-sighted article because it did. It did say, hey, we are the place that is the manufacturer for the world. And if you look at what you buy anywhere that you buy it, it was likely made in China. While we can say, all right, that's solidified, the amount of new plants being opened in China by foreign manufacturers has dropped to near zero. And if you take the people that are leaving plants in China and going somewhere else, we've got a negative. Their manufacturing is falling off on, on future look the amount of spending for new manufacturing facilities is falling off. Foreign investment is falling off, massively falling off. That means that China's not going to settle out where it used to be either. This may be the golden era for China right now when the world is depending on it for almost everything manufactured. But we're losing our honeymoon here. China's Xi coming to Washington to talk to the United States' Biden is a big statement of, whoa, a lot of people have slowed down on the things that have made us wealthy. Uh, we're going to go and see if we can't patch this up a little bit without losing face because now we're powerful. We can't go and drop our face. This is China's vision of itself. They've become a world player. They absolutely have. But now they're recognizing that being arrogant about that causes us all to want to go somewhere else. And the fact that they have locked down their economy repeatedly over the pandemic rather than allowing it to continue to manufacture is a big cause for the inflation that the rest of the world is seeing. We can't change all of this stuff overnight, but when it settles out, it's going to be a big change. And that's my, uh, where's it going to be? <laughs> We're not really sure, but it's good to be here in the United States. We still are the best place in the world for the rewarding of new thoughts and new ideas and new innovations. There's no place else in the world where you can go and get a greater reward for your new adding to the value of the world. And as long as that's the case, I suspect we're going to come out of this looking really good where the places that don't emphasize that are going to come out looking not so well. I'd like to change the subject a little bit. Let's do it. I think I beat that horse enough times that uh, it, it may be saying, hey, oh, no, it's just hungry. You raised your finger like you had something to say right there. Did, did you, or was your finger just twitching? I think my finger was just twitching, although okay. there's lots of things I could say, like dog and cat and yes. up and down. Yes. I have, I have lots of words. I have an abundance of words. I, I have a, a interesting addition. China's going through some growing pains itself. We've talked about the Belt and Road Project from China over the last 10 years. 
Um, they have invested a large amount of money, invested being, put some quotes around that in your air quote finger fashion, uh, a lot of money to very poor, very poor countries to build infrastructure as part of connecting the world to China, make kind of, you know, the concept of all roads lead to Rome or all roads lead to the United States. If you're going to build a trade network, it should be centered around yourself. So there's large stretches of road to crossing areas that are fairly uninhabited because they want to increase their ability to ship their goods. They want to decrease the price to get their goods where they're trying to get them. But they've run into some issues. Um, at the heart of the issues are that there's graft and bribery and corruption involved in these deals quite often. And Sri Lanka's government gave back control of a lot of the real estate that they got loans on by gave back control. They basically gave China 99-year leases to state-backed firms um, for major airports and ports. But China lost a lot of money on the round trip. They loaned a bunch of money to these countries and have had no payment. And a lot of times what they load the money to create didn't get created very well or at all. Roads that don't function as roads and ports that don't function as ports and so on. So they've run into a rather large problem on this aspirational goal to, to cause the infrastructure of all these different countries to improve. Anybody that's listened to us for any length of time at all so, has heard us say that the best money that government can spend is generally on infrastructure because it allows for better trade and networking of manufacturers and so on inside the United States. It doesn't work so well if you're making infrastructure in countries that don't prioritize it, that look at it as, a, as free money to the people in charge and China's running into that. It's one of the things that they've had trouble with internally as well, and that the infrastructure money that they've spent in China has been nowhere near as effective as infrastructure money in the United States. And I say that knowing about things like the Boston Tunnel, <laughs> knowing about all the boondoggle transportation costs and overspending on highways and so on, it's nowhere near as bad percentage-wise as what's happened in China. Uh, so this, these are things that t we should be aware of. Yes. Is an example of, it's easy to understand when infrastructure money is going to help things and when it's not. Um, it's hard to do at the time for a lot of reasons. A lot of China's infrastructure money was spent on two issues. One, it looks cool. They're bullet trains. Um, it's not very effective. And the other one trains, is, but they look great. We want to keep everybody working, so we're going to build a bunch of stuff we don't need, and we hope we'll need in the future. That is a generally a very bad idea because econo economies tend to go in directions you don't expect them to go in the future. So you can wind up with the, the proverbial bridge to nowhere. Um, in the United States, we have the reverse problem. We have too much commerce trying to use too, I say too much, we have, we're overburdened in our infrastructure. The railroads are operating pretty much at mass, max capacity. The highways are pretty much operating at max capacity. Building more highways and more railroads and more wire 
communication capacity would simply be to address an actual need we have for more infrastructure. We are underinvested in infrastructure in the United States. The Chinese are massively overinvested in infrastructure. They did this around the world. Why do they do it around the world? For several reasons. The leading one of probably is the fact that they are very dependent on the rest of the world for raw materials. They don't like the idea that they could get cut off. So they have gone to the places where the raw materials are and put themselves in charge by first loaning money and then laying claim to what the collateral for which they loaned the money. I think they may be in error because these countries where they have loaned the money and have even taken possession of things could simply say, Chinese leave. We're taking this back. We, we, the United, the rest of the Western world in the United States, by the way, went through that in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. going into the 80s. Yeah. The we Ven were Venezuelan loaded. nationalization right. of the United States companies, Cuban nationalization of United right. States companies. And, and we've learned this the hard way. The Chinese haven't learned it yet. Uh, and at some point, I think they will, and they'll be really unhappy, but there's not much they can do about it. They can't very well invade a country in Africa and take it over, although they'd like to at that point. They simply don't have the capacity. Yeah, and, and I'm going to come back. I said something about the high-speed railway system in China. Over the past half a decade, only five years, they've increased their rail capacity in China to a level that is not seen anywhere else on the planet. They've spent a tremendous amount of money putting in high rail, high speed rail that can go up to 350 kilometers per hour to connect a, a massive country and the largest population on the planet. And I said, it's not very functional. Wait a minute. If the, the railway system's functional, you can get from place to place at high speed and it's very nice. What I meant about the non-functionality of that infrastructure spending in the United States, if a highway goes across your property or through your town, the highway department spends a lot of time figuring out how much they're going to owe you for it at market rates. And if it's going through your town, they've got to figure out good exit paths and so on. They got to make sure that the people can get off the highway at your town. Chinese didn't do that. They just took the property and built the rail lines. And if it went through your plant in your town, it may have gone right over your town with no way of getting on or off there because they're so interested in going fast. And that's essence, that's killing communities all across their country, even communities that were boomtown equivalents in the United States when a highway went through the community because the community has no access to the rail, even though it's right there. So the way they're compensating for ownership is a, or not, and the way that they are looking at infrastructure is not toward increasing the quality of life of the citizens or increasing innovation at the small le level across the country, but rather to increase the speed at which large corporations can ship things and people back and forth. That doesn't lead to innovation. And when large corporations aren't manufacturing in China, it's a problem, not a benefit. Back to you, sir. We're almost out of time for this hour, but I want to make a comment. I've said this before. There's a great experiment going on in the world and will be seen in the history books. China and Russia, for example, have centralized the authoritarian governments and they're doing centralized economic planning. They're saying the government will tell you what to build and where and how it will be done. And they're doing this by a master plan, which is very orderly and very 
easily understood and looks really cool. In the United States, we're using this chaotic system where everybody is doing pretty much what they want to do. The states are all doing different things. The companies are all doing different things. So it's a great, great debate going on in essence and in, in experiment going on. I think we're going to win this one hands down. Though. Yeah. Innovation comes from chaos. And right now, over the last couple of decades, China has gotten more chaotic as they flirted with capitalism and innovation. And but they're coming back. In they are saying, no, we don't like that. We want order. Well, order does not create innovation. And the multiple thousands of years of Chinese history isn't about supporting innovation. It's about supporting stability. Uh, stability sometimes at the detriment of the people, but still stability. They're moving back in that direction where the United States shows no sign of letting up on the chaos yet. Uh, chaos can be really good. It can also be really bad. Uh, we'll see. I, I think you're right. I believe that the experiment is going to come in our favor on this. It has so far, and we're about out of time. It's been going a long time. We're acolytes of Adam Smith. They're still acolytes of Karl Marx. Maybe even before that to one of the early emperors about you know the bureaucracy is going to flourish. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six, we've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it, so we've been doing this a long, long time. And the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think, right. 
Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.